Hello, welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travellers who love good food. I'm your host, Natasha Mirosh, an insatiably curious food and travel writer who's toured and tasted her way around more than 60 countries. Join me now as I talk to the people who make travelling and eating such a delicious adventure. Hello and welcome to Extra Virgin. Anyone who's interested in food is likely to know Matthew Evans. He's a former chef and journalist famous for being one of the few Australian food critics ever to be successfully sued for a restaurant review. He became a farmer, restaurateur and food advocate and in 2018 he moved from Sydney to Tasmania's Huon Valley and a life on the land which he's documented in SBS's television program Gourmet Farmer. However, he certainly hasn't put down the pen having written an impressive 13 books so far including his newest Soil, the incredible story of what keeps the earth and us healthy. It's a book we're going to talk a little bit about today. Welcome Matthew. Well, thanks so much for having me, me, Natasha. I always love it if anyone wants to talk about soil. (laughs) Well, Matthew, while you've worn a few different career hats in your time, the one unifying theme is food. Tell us about your interest in food and what inspired you particularly to become a chef. Yeah, look, I guess I'm inspired by uh, my gluttony. (laughs) I grew up hungry. I was a skinny, hungry boy, and I'm I'm a slightly overweight, hungry man. (laughs) And so I've, I've been interested in I guess I got interested in eating lots when I was young because I was always hungry and very active. And then I realized that you could not, you don't have to eat lots, you can eat better. And so I got, I went from, I guess, quantity to quality. And that led me into discovering restaurants where, you know, I grew up in Canberra, 1970s Canberra, the food wasn't all that flash. And, you know, certainly I I trained in restaurants as a chef because I was interested in food and some of that food wasn't that flash. And then I discovered there was nice food and you could have nice food quite often and there were restaurants serving it and then I fell in love with restaurants from the from the other side from the front of house and you know that that you know when someone comes and delivers a beautiful plate of food and makes you feel better about yourself and you leave you you have that dining experience where you leave feeling like a better human being and than when you arrived and and feeling slightly loved or you know something better about the world and I, mm. I loved that experience. And so I, I immersed myself in restaurants. It, it really is a bit of a production, isn't it? You feel like you're witnessing a theatre production that happens every night and you're, you're part of that audience. We always use words like experience when we talk about eating out, don't we? It's, it's not as simple as sustenance. No, and I think theatre is, it's kind of captures it, except it's, it's a bit more real than theatre. You know, mm. it's, it's actually the people involved in hospitality, the, the, the good ones, actually, they just love feeding you and they love serving you and they love making you happy and that idea of hospitality the true nature of hospitality is to welcome strangers and i think when you see that in action in a good place it's it is like it's witnessing a miracle it is a thing of beauty how did you move to the other side of the fence so to speak and become a restaurant critic well fell yeah so falling in love with with dining because i was i was interested in you know, i was cooking in restaurants and i wanted to learn more about how to cook good food and i so i started eating in good restaurants and then once I was eating in good restaurants, I realized I could, you know, wouldn't it be great if there was a job where someone subsidized you eating in good restaurants? Because it's quite a nice experience. And, you know, it's kind of a dream job for lots of people. And it was my dream job for a long time. So I worked on how to do that. So I, I just ate in a lot of restaurants, wrote a lot of things uh, about those restaurants. And eventually someone gave me a job. And at first it was very much subsidized. You know, it, was, it still cost me more than I made. And eventually I got a job as a chief restaurant critic for the Sydney Morning Herald, where I, I essentially was a full-time 
critic for five years and writing about the best restaurants in in the city and and a lot of restaurants that weren't the best (laughs) at the same time. (laughs) I think many university students studying uh, writing and food writing in particular still have to study your case when the paper was sued for a review that you wrote. Yeah. And I think what happens is, you know, you th- you, everyone thinks, and I used to think the job was eating in the best restaurants in the land, but your job, that's not work, that's fun. Your work is to write about the bad restaurants and to try and, you know, I guess, constructive criticism so that, so that people who dine in those places know how to order defensively or well, but also that may even improve the industry as a whole so that what I want, what I really want, Natasha, is I want everybody to eat well all the time. I grew up with British parents in 1970s Canberra, and we only ate well on Christmas and birthdays. And, <laughs> and it wasn't every Christmas. And well, it was every Christmas, but it wasn't every birthday. And I discovered that there are other cultures and other people who eat well every day. It, it can be as humble as a potato or as noble as a truffle. It doesn't have to be expensive, but you can eat well just brown rice and lentils, just have good brown rice and nicely cooked lentils. And then you can have good food every day. What a, what a privilege. And so I want other people to be able to enjoy that as well. Mm. Well, as you said, it, it was a dream job, but you came to the realisation it was no longer what you wanted to do. And you, you chose a different life and you chose Tasmania. Why Tasmania in particular? And what brought you to this realisation it wasn't what you wanted to do anymore? Yeah, there's a couple of reasons, Tasmania. One is having grown up in, in inland Australia, where you get harsh winters, harsh summers, and there's not a lot of topsoil. I thought, if you want to grow something, go somewhere where it has a better chance. So go somewhere where it's fertile. And there are a few pl- places around Australia I considered that I knew a little bit about, like Southwest WA, parts of Victoria, North, northern North Coast, New South Wales, where the soil's fertile. But Tasmania has a, a very strong f- food culture. So people here haven't lost their connection to the land. My neighbour, you know, knows how to hand milk cows. My, my neighbour knows how to make air-dried ham. You'd call it prosciutto, but down here, they pro- probably just call it ham. Um, and they hang it under the eaves of their house. Um, that connection to, to land, to soil hasn't skipped a generation like it has in much of Australia. And so when I wanted to get into growing, the perfect place to do that is in a place where growing is part of the culture of the of um, the community. And what was the pivotal moment when you just went, okay, that's enough. I don't want to do this. I don't want a restaurant review anymore. Well, I, I still loved restaurant reviewing when I left and I wanted to leave while I still loved it because I think it's the, it, you know, it seems to everybody, oh, wow, you know, get to eat out all the time. But when you're eating out 10 times a week, you know, there's a point, I think, at which you might become a bit jaded and bitter. And I wanted to leave before that happened. So I was still loving writing about restaurants, but I also wanted to work out why some ingredients tasted different to others. So I was in really fancy restaurants eating really fancy food. And they would tell me, you know, they they are the best, you know, I, I would think they were some of the best restaurants in Australia. And they would say they had the ingredients that you could buy. And then I would eat those ingredients and think, hang on, I just met a home gardener who had something better that they just got out of their backyard. Why, why does that lettuce taste better than the lettuce in you know, you know, Sydney or Brisbane's most expensive restaurant? And then I discovered that the growing the growers count. You know, an ingredient represents is an expression of the grower. And then I wanted to grow I thought, grow stuff. I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if I had a crack at growing stuff? But I couldn't <laughs> where I lived in Sydney, and so I ended up in Tasmania. Going, well, you know, here I am. I can have a garden and three chooks. I realised I could buy a little farm. Ended up buying ten chooks, three sheep, and a dairy cow, and two pigs, and I've had a big garden and sort of overshot the the market <laughs> bit in terms of just wanting to put a little bit of lettuce and 
you know, some Brussels sprouts on the table. <laughs> well, for listeners who haven't been to Fat Pig Farm, can you set the scene for us? Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, we're in the southernmost shire of Australia. It's it's um, sort of rolling hills, green for about nine, ten months of the year, and then they sort of brown off in summer. Lots of little bits of bush dotted around. We're 70 acres. We're a mixed holding, a mixed farm. So we, my son, <laughs> he calls it a mixed up farm. Um, <laughs> he's probably right. So we have a market garden. We, we fatten pigs. We milk two or three dairy cows. We we have some goats that we use for eating blackberries. You know, weed controlling, but we we also eat the goats. We have a small beef herd of cattle. We have some hens. Um, we have a duck named Joanne, and <laughs> yeah, we grow a lot of different things. It sort of in, in some ways looks a bit like a farm from the eighteen eighties. We don't have a tractor. We do just about everything's done with manual labour. Yeah, we don't have a lot of machinery, and so it's. I think it's what we're trying to do there is grow as much as we can within our fence line that we can put on the plate. So to take that paddock to plate thing to its log- logical conclusion. Mm. And how does how do you learn to become a farmer? You've obviously learnt on the job and it sounds like it was all new to you coming from the city. You make mistakes. I think <laughs> anyone who doesn't make mistakes doesn't make anything. And I think growing food, like cooking food, is at its heart inherently complex. It's in, 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 You can never stop learning. And so... You can read about stuff and you can watch other people and you can apprentice yourself to other people, but eventually you have to launch in and make and have a go and and make some mistakes along the way. And so I did that. I would read, I'd read enough to get inspired, but not enough to get scared off because, it, you know, you, you can talk yourself out of anything. And I, I meet people all the time who've talked themselves out of buying a little patch of land or, or setting up a veggie garden because it's easy to talk yourself out of it when you think of all the things that can go wrong. But you can do that, you know, with parenting or getting into a relationship or, you know, traveling. Um, you can get that in any way. If you read too much, you can always find something that went wrong for somebody. But most of the time, I've been surprised, 95% of what we do, even though we're a bit hopeless, you know, 95% of what we do seems to work out in the long run. And um, that amazes me that, that you know, I'm, it shouldn't because nature wants to grow things, but you know, that a mother pig wants to raise live piglets and a carrot seed, its ultimate goal is to become a carrot. But if we put ourselves, you know, in the in the process and try to help those things happen, nature nature succeeds. But it still, it still surprises me and amazes me that, that we can succeed like that. <laughs> well, I'm very impressed. I remember watching Gourmet Farmer when you killed a chicken for the first time. And I, I just kind of wondered, have you managed now after these years to establish the necessary distance between yourself and your animals for the killing. And by the time the meat is cooked and on your plate, has any emotion connected to it as being something that you once knew and cared for gone? Is it simply meat at that stage? That's a really good question and a very interesting question and a hard one to answer. The connection with the animals in some respects is deeper than ever and the the death process is worse than ever. I'm in the process of, of whittling our 34 goats. We had we had 11 goats. They all got pregnant. I thought we'd end up with you know 15 or 16. We end up with 34 goats, which is you know destroying our our farm. And so I need to get I need them to not be there. So we're gradually putting them in the freezer. And every time I feel sullied and um, dirtied by the process, I, I'm aware that this is how meat is produced. But it doesn't get easier. It what does get easier is being able to take, which sounds really awful, um, but it's what everyone else does, is outsourcing. So taking 
pigs to the abattoir where they have to go to be served in our restaurant. I load them on a trailer and I don't have a very strong connection to the, the young pigs. I have a very, very, very strong connection to our breeder pigs because they live with us for a long time. But the younger pigs, I don't know their name. They don't have names and I don't feel um, the connection. And, I, and when I eat that, I don't feel any sense of the animal itself, except for respect for the fact that we are always privileged to be able to eat meat. And I think it, it is, and I don't want to take that privilege lightly and, and taking the life of something, whether I do it or someone else does it, we need to honor that by using it as best we can and not, you know, never wasting anything. In 2016, you returned to your roots in a way by opening a restaurant at Fat Pig Farm. I'm interested to know why, as it seems like you'd be pretty busy as it is. And of course, you're leaving yourself dangerously open to pot shots from the restaurants you've reviewed. Yeah, look, that's that's interesting. That I, I thought that too. You know, as a yeah, as a critic, I guess um, you know you go into a place, and I, I was always actually trying to find the good in a place. That was my job was to say, well, you know, someone's hard earned money is going to be spent here. You know, they may not go out very often. What are they going to get? What's their experience going to be? Are they going to get value for money? Is it going to be exciting? Is it going to be you know they're going to feel welcomed? And it is very strange to be on the other side again because my original job when I left school was as an apprentice chef and now I'm, we run a restaurant and I cook in the restaurant most weeks. And it's, it's unnerving in a way, but I think we're not really a restaurant. We're sort of like a big home kitchen. And, and, and interesting, we don't get, you know, we get amazing farmers and, and incredible gardeners and wonderful people who are connected to soil and the growing of food come to visit us. And we do get some chefs, but not many. And we, we, I don't think we've ever had a restaurant critic apart from one that came when we were filming Gourmet Farm. And you know, so we've been ignored by Delicious. We've been ignored by lots of publications, which is absolutely fine by us because, because the people who come, come because they, they're not coming to you know, a two-hat restaurant or whatever. They're coming f- f- to see what we do. And we're sort of the anti-restaurant mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's weird. It's a weird thing. You know, like people go, oh, why hasn't Gourmet Traveller ever done anything on you? And it's like, well... I don't know. I'm not. I don't work with them, but it, it doesn't really matter because what we're doing is is true to place, true to our our beliefs, our core beliefs. It's work that has not only purpose but but ultimately meaning. And yeah, I'm not sure that I would want a restaurant critic to come. But I mean, the problem is you don't have a choice normally. You just show up. <laughs> You'd know that. Yes, it's interesting though that that the model that that you're doing is still quite rare in Australia. I was in Sicily just before COVID and and went to something very similar to, to Fat Pig Farm in that it's that more holistic experience. The food is, is grown on site. But yet I guess we don't really know where to slot those kind of venues in yet. They don't really fit into yeah. the, the typical restaurant model that a critic would go out to critique, I guess. Yeah, look. Yeah, so so at the last week we put a carrot, a raw carrot, on the napkin and said, "That's that's eat that," <laughs> because we think nature has perfected that carrot this this season. It's got it's frost sweetened, so the frost makes the carrot sweeter. They've been in the ground for ages. They slow in growth, and that carrot is an ultimate expression of place and time. And what does a restaurant critic do with that? Like, oh, we ate a carrot. I mean, they mm. don't have the vocabulary probably to explain if they can taste the difference between that carrot and another carrot. And it doesn't sound very exciting. And we're not trying, but, and that's the other thing. Restaurant reviews are often about what's exciting and what's hot and what's, you know, we're really not trying to be exciting. We're not trying to be fashionable because you know, certainly being fashionable is not very good because when things go out of fashion, you're out of fashion, you know? Mm. So what we're doing, I think, 
we're trying to be we're just trying to be us and and whether people come or not is is well people do come and it's really beautiful and whether restaurant critics come or not is entirely up to them and they've chosen not to come and that's actually really really good for us actually <laughs> <laughs> i bet that's a little bit of a relief in some ways oh yeah it is yeah and of course all that experience from both the kitchen and the land partnered with what i suspect is natural curiosity has led you to become an advocate for better food production systems which you've written about extensively. But with your latest soil, you go even deeper, if you'll pardon the pun. I have to admit that I'm still only halfway through the book. There's a lot to digest. But I've been pretty shocked by some of the statistics you quote, such as the fact that 40% of the world's agriculture has been abandoned because the soil is no longer fertile, or that we only have 60 years of topsoil left for growing if we keep growing food and clearing land at the current rate. It's pretty shocking. Was it a gradual awareness as a farmer that led you to want to research and write about soil or was it something that you learned about that triggered it? I got interested in soil because I think anyone who grows stuff inherently has questions about why things grow better in one place than another. So you know, I might uh, I remember having a row of broad beans in our first year that we were had our market garden and within the row, the same seeds from the same company getting the same amount of water in what I thought was the same soil. Some of them were twice as tall than others. And you could actually see it, it looked from the side like a, a wave going up and down. You could see, you know, all of them in one patch were taller. And then as you went down the bed, they got shorter and then they got taller again. And that all came down to the soil. There was differences in the soil from how it had been treated historically. And that was those lines represented the old apple orchard and the rows of the apple orchard. And I started to question, you know, why, what's the difference with some soil? And then, and then that miraculous moment when, when you look under a microscope and you see living things in soil. You know, I used to think of soil as something to park on, to, you know, something that, that, mm -hmm. that got in the, you know, the way of eating a carrot. If you, if you had soil on the carrot, get rid of it. You know, that was kind of it. And, and I used to think that plants ate dirt or something. I didn't realise that a single teaspoon of healthy soil can have more living things in it than there are humans on the planet. That fungal hyphae, these little threads of fungi, you can have kilometres of them in a, in a teaspoon of soil. And those hyphae, they, they are transporting nutrients and sending messages between plants and uh, between microbes. And there's this living, breathing ecosystem under our feet that helps plants to grow. So I didn't realise soil was a living thing and that, when I discovered that, I guess that's what piqued my interest. I went, holy moly, <laughs> what, what there were, you know, a single shovel full of soil is more biodiverse than the entire Amazon rainforest. Like that's incredible. The Amazon rainforest, we think it, it's the most biodiverse ecosystem on land. And, and we think of it as, as so utterly complex and, and mind-blowingly interesting. Well, one, one shovel full of soil from a market garden is more, is more biodiverse, but we can't see the biodiversity. And so we traditionally, well, the last hundred years or so, we haven't cared about it. I think our ancestors knew. They knew intuitively that the earth was alive and that it had to be respected and, and had, how disrespect in certain ways would lead to, you know, less food on the table, essentially. And, and now we know it through electron microscopes and, you know, complex DNA analyses and shotgun genomics and all that sort of stuff. We now know what our ancestors believed was that the earth is alive and the more alive it is, the better it will look after us. So where have we gone wrong? <laughs> where have we gone wrong? I think, well, for not knowing or forgetting or ignoring the evidence that soil was living, 
we've come up with really good ways to grow food that have been bad for soil. So one of them is artificial fertilizer that allows us to grow food in places that we probably couldn't grow or shouldn't grow food. And that generally is, has been bad for soil um, because soil plant has a relationship with those billions of things under the soil and plants evolved in a symbiotic relationship, a mutually beneficial relationship between plants and soil. And when you just add a chemical to the plant to get it to grow bigger, quicker, like artificial nitrogen, the plant does that. But all these things that used to provide services for the plant are sort of put out of a job. And so they either die or go lazy. And, and that ultimately affects soil. One of the worst things we've done is plow soil. We didn't know that that was a bad thing. And we invented the plow and they've had various incarnations and lots of different cultures have come up with forms of plow to turn the soil. But we now know that turning the soil, exposing it to the, not only allows it to be blown and washed away, but it also kills that subterranean life because those things don't like being exposed to the air. It's, it's, like, it's like a massive earthquake that comes through and it shatters their home and all their lines of communication are gone and all their food source is gone because there's no living plants and living plants provide food for the, for the ecosystem under the soil. So they're two of the big ways that we've been ruining soil. You know, some, some people estimate that, that the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, about a quarter, maybe even a third of that since the Industrial Revolution has come from the plough. So... We used to plough a bit, but once you got tractors, you know, you got the internal combustion engine burning fossil fuels. Once you got that, you could plough a lot more land a lot more quickly. And so what farmers used to do occasionally was then done all the time. And there are people, the good news is there's farmers all around the world doing great stuff in working out how to grow food and not plough, how to grow food and not use as much or um, maybe not, not no artificial fertiliser. So there's wonderful things being done. Mm. Um, in that space so it's not a it's not a doom and gloom thing but 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 traditionally growing food can harm soil and and to, to put it back to when you those stats you're talking about you know 40 percent of agricultural land being abandoned the the great example is the fertile crescent i guess from biblical the biblical era 2000 three four thousand years ago is no longer fertile it's pretty much the the estimates are that we lose a soccer pitch worth of of soil every five seconds around the world and that it doesn't take a genius to work out that we can't do that forever and not run out of not run out of soil. In fact, now is the time that we 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 are running out of soil right now. Yeah, you know, we, we need to we need to treat it with respect, take it seriously, and work out ways not only to stop losing soil but to regenerate the soil that we currently have. Mm -hmm. You talked about farmers and some farmers doing good things. In general, though. Are farmers aware and do they care about the kind of topics that you're, you're talking about or do they just think you're some kind of mad greenie? <laughs> oh, look, that's, that's, that's a fascinating one. I mean, there's all sorts of farmers. Farmers, some people sort of think of farmers as saints and some people think of them as devils, depending on which side of the ecological debate or, or whatever you're at the time. Farmers are, hu are human beings. Most farmers aren't trying to ruin, ruin soil. Most farmers want to leave their land better than they found it. Most farmers want to do the right thing for their for themselves and for for the people who follow, and and particularly they want to do the right thing because the people who follow are often their own children who who are going into farming. Um, that's not always the case, and, and there are rapacious companies, there are rapacious farmers who who damage the land knowingly. But generally, most people are tr trying to do the right thing. It's just a series of historical accidents. It's been a series of technological improvements that have. Um, allowed us to ruin soil in, at unprecedented rates and and not 
understand the consequences. What we know now are the consequences. So we are losing topsoil globally 30 to 40 times faster than nature can make it, right? So, and, and we also have a, a, a population that's, we've never seen a population as big as it is, and it's gonna be getting bigger and bigger, nearly 10 billion by the middle of the century. So we've got an increasing population, more people need food, decreasing topsoil, but we also now have the technology to know where humans have built topsoil because they've done it all around the world. Any home gardener knows how to build topsoil. It's possible. And we've done it in lots of different cultures from Africa to, to Americas to, to Europe over the years. And, and so we know how to do it. We've got to work out every place is different, but we have the technology and there are p brilliant farmers doing great things all around the world in trying to improve topsoil and lots of them having incredible success. And I think we're about to see an explosion in, in, in it's often called regenerative agricultural agroecology where, where farmers build ecosystems back onto their properties, self-sustaining ecosystems that have soil at their foundation, because that's where everything starts and finishes in soil, including you and me, Natasha. Well, that sounds very hopeful. Where I live, Matt, in Queensland, you can drive west and see landscapes that I assume have been denigrated and denuded by cattle farming, although, to be fair, we've been in drought for quite a long time here now. Is large-scale animal farming compatible with healthy soil? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. I mean, that sort of the meat ruminants, especially cattle, are getting a bad rap in the in the climate change debates. Look, there's no ecosystem on Earth that, that exists without animals, and soil soil co-evolved uh, to the way it is. You know, that we the, it co-evolved with animals pretty much for the last you know 500 million years or so. So, so soil needs animals. What those animals are and where they are is what matters. So, the landscape. That you see could be a natural result of drought or it could be the natural uh, result of overgrazing and it would be hard for me to know and you know each place is different yes animals can have a place in the landscape but they have to be carefully managed but i think anyone who's anytime you see bare earth that's a bad thing so it's that soil being damaged so and and it's actually which is which is interesting to me it's actually easier to improve soil and carbon in soil so carbon in soil is a really good thing carbon in the air is is a really bad thing an increase at the moment but carbon in soil organic matter in soil is a really good thing and it's easier to do that using animals than it is growing wheat it's easier to do that you know than it, with animals than it is growing broccoli because with those crops you create bare earth sometimes you plow the earth but often not to grow the grains these days thank goodness but you might use a weed killer and weed killers kill all the plants on top now now soil only gets gets all of its energy from green living plants. So, you know, when a plant photosynthesizes, it creates sugar, takes carbon dioxide out of the air and it creates carbohydrate sugar out of thin air. And it feeds a lot of those sugars to the underground ecosystem. So as soon as you have no living plants, you now have no food source. So actually it's harder for someone with a market garden to do it regeneratively than it is someone with grazing animals. Because when you have a market garden, you end up with bare soil, you end up killing plants, and, and removing stuff. Whereas perennial grasses, so grasses that, that live on year to year in pasture and careful management, and it has to be careful management of animals, can actually improve soil. So to answer your question, I don't know what might've happened near you. Overgrazing is terrible, terrible, terrible for soil. And it happens a lot all around the world, but carefully managed grazing can actually be a boon for soil. 
So as a farmer, and this is the thing, yeah. you know, the, the, the single best way to improve grain land, growing land, and this is everywhere from Ireland to America to here to Africa, is to let it go back to grass and let animals graze it. And it's counterintuitive, but when you grow food and you concentrate on soil, it makes a bit more sense. You go, oh, hang on, ecosystems had animals. We need to work out how to have animals back in there. They don't have to be domesticated, but if they're not domesticated, how do you manage wild animals and mm. still get a crop? You know, so it's, it's an interesting, it's a dilemma for, for growers all around the world. That's really interesting. So soil health is not only about the quantity of food we're able to produce, but ultimately it can actually affect our own health through our gut biome. Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, so there's really great research. I mean, this is what I think find incredible when I started to dig around, excuse my pun, into, into soil, was these, the fact that, the, that healthy soil can, can increase the nutrient density of plants. And I think like if you've grown something in your backyard and you know that what you grow can taste better than anything you can buy, and I think pretty much anyone who's grown stuff and improves the soil over a period of years can, knows that this is true. So healthy soil, more living soil, puts more stuff in plants. And the way that works is plants, because they don't just eat dirt, they can only access things from the soil through a, through a relationship with living things. Lots of you know, those billions of things in a, in a teaspoon of healthy soil, they're making minerals and vitamins available in a plant uh, available form, a bioavailable form. So in a, in a form the plant can take up. So a plant doesn't put its roots into the ground and suck up a bit of calcium off a rock um, it needs something else to do that. That might be a worm, it might be fun, it might be a bacteria, archaea, nematodes, little microscopic worms. And so we know healthier soil can, can create more nutrient density. So there can be up to 70,000 chemical components of plants that come from, most of those come from their interaction with living things in the soil. And a lot of those things have unpronounceable names, almost invisible to nutritional science. In the book, I refer to some research where they call it nutritional dark matter. So it's they, scientists know these things exist. They've even given them names, but they're not exactly sure of how much is in the food and they're not really sure what they do for us, but they know they probably do something for us. We only, I think, you know, through most of the nutrition panel sort of information, they're dealing with about 150 chemicals. So that's nothing like the 70,000 that can be in food if it's grown in healthy soil. And then we know that some things, you know, things are passed, the, the more the more variety that you have of, of different types of food, the better it is for your, for your body. And we know that the DNA from the food can be passed through the lining of our gut and, and pass messages to our body. We know that our bodies are, are mostly microbes. And so when we feed our bodies, we're actually feeding microbes in our bodies. And those microbes have an effect on our immunity, on our mental health. You know, there, there are chemicals made in soil. One, one's called L-ergothionine, L which is, is made by soil microbes and fungi. And it's, it's, it's created only in soil. It's passed into, into plants unchanged and it passes from the plant into the, our body unchanged. It passes through the lining of the gut unchanged. So the same chemical, often things, chemicals are changed by our digestion, but this passes into our bloodstream. And then it can pass this very protective barrier, the blood-brain barrier, and get straight into our brain. And we know L-ergothionine has anti-dementia effects. So this thing that is only made in soil can pass right through the system into our brain where it exerts, has an effect on our mental health. Now, this is astonishing research. It's one chemical out of the 70,000. But the other thing we know is that when you plough soil, that you reduce the amount of L-ergothionine that the soil, that the plants take up in, in the, the recently ploughed soil. And that's probably when you plough soil, you've cut those fungal hyphae threads, these tiny little threads of, 
uh, of fungus where the ergothion is probably less gets into the plant, less gets into our gut, less gets into our brain. So when we alter soil, we are ultimately altering things that we don't understand yet, but they, we are certainly altering, potentially altering things to do with our mental health. Wow. Mind blown. What about home gardeners? How can we improve our soil and get those benefits that you've just talked about from growing our own produce? <laughs> yeah, my, my wife is the market gardener in, on, in our family and she has three things that you really need to remember to, to grow food well. And, and that it, you have to remember them in this order, compost, compost and compost. That's, that's it. That's pretty much it. So look, what, what compost is, is, is a home for, for living soil. So it, it has the food. Well, so oftentimes it has the microbes in like beautiful, you know, billions of little things living in, in it, but it's also a home for them. It provides a food source for microbes. It provides structure to soil. So soil holds water better and um, can shed it better in times of sort of uh, a flood. It acts like a promotant for plants. So it helps them grow stronger, better, healthier. So you, the use and compost essentially is rotted organic matter. So things that used to be living and it, it's the same process on a forest floor when all the leaf litter falls to the ground and all these you know animals come and little microscopic animals or whatever come and chew it up and and then the fungi and, and bacteria and um, protists and algae break it down it's the same thing that happens in your compost heap at home and so that's probably the best thing you can do never leave bare earth try to have a diversity of species like plants every plant takes something from soil and every plant gives something to soil so nature hates a monoculture it hates a wheat field but if you have a wheat field followed by, you know, I'll make, make it up, I don't grow wheat, but followed by soybeans, then followed by triticale, followed by sorghum, followed by a period of, of grass, all of those plants over a period of time have given something to the soil and they've also taken something. So you're sort of replenishing soil as you go. If you just grow wheat, 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 or in your home garden, if you just grow broccoli, 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 the soil loses out because it needs diversity. So you either have diversity in a space so lots of different species at one time or diversity over time where you have like we have to do we, we might have carrots followed by you know brassica followed by potatoes followed by you know something else i don't know and i probably stuffed up those rotations my you know my wife will kill me <laughs> for saying that so there's a rotation but you know different plants over time rather than different plants all at once in the space mm. always green, green living plants mm. and diversity um, because green living plants mean the soil has something to eat and is getting something from from um, its association with plant roots and and diversity because every plant is contributing to soil as well as taking something from soil. And so when you have diversity, it's a self-sustaining ecosystem. Remember, this stuff under our feet is a living, breathing superorganism that that has been there for you know seven hundred million years. And it, it has formed relationships with plants and animals. And so the way to keep it going is to have, still have relationship with plants and animals. As growers, as you know, whether you've got you know, a pot plant or a, a little home garden or you know, a thousand acre um, cattle station, if you, we're managing it for what we want, but you can also manage it for what the soil wants so that we can still get what we want next year and in 10 years, in 100 years, in 1,000 years. You know, humans have shown... They've, they found topsoil that was made in the Amazon 7,000 years ago by humans. It's not natural. It's human-made. It's still fertile 7,000 years later. And so we know how to do this. We just have to, we just have to put soil at the top of our minds, not just under our feet. Mm. Now, is there anything that we as consumers can do to help? Yeah, and it's a great question. And it is hard 
you know, it's, it's easier if you have your have access to soil. I think it, the important thing to remember is every bit of soil matters. So if you've got a pot plant, great. If you've got some, you know, a little, you know, a few herbs outside your, your, your door on your balcony, or if you've got a little garden, anytime you can grow green living things is a good thing. And it'll give you a sense of appreciation for soil. In fact, there, there are microbes in soil that when you inhale them, and you can also eat them, like if you have them on a, you know, lightly rinsed carrot, but these, these soils have a, create a happy hormone effect in your body. They're so so utterly powerful that they're using them for as a potential treatment for PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. So when you inhale these microbes, they make you happy. They can re- release you know, dopamine and all sorts of stuff in your brain. So anyway, so anytime you be in contact with soil is a good thing. But the other thing to remember is there are, well, there are supermarkets getting interested in regenerative agriculture. So farmers who are trying to care for soil. But one of the things you can really do is eat, eat diversity. The, the way you know, buy a vegetable you've never heard of, buy a grain that you don't, you've, you've not heard of before. Because every time you do that, what's happened, we've simplified the growing of food to be very few things provide most of our diet. And so we know that if you eat more than 30 plant products a week, and that can just be a tiny bit of herb, fresh herb on, a, on your pasta, more than 30 plant products a week, you have a better immune system than if you eat less than 10 plant products a week. So we know that diversity helps your body, but it also helps the growers because, as I was saying, soil likes diversity as well. So the more different things that we can grow, the better it is. The problem is everyone wants wheat, 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 wheat. They want broccoli. They want potatoes. They want carrots. And But if you buy some kohlrabi or you buy, you know, a diff, I'm trying to think of you know, some, some different vegetables, you know, um, salsify or whatever that allows the farmer to grow different things which can help to feed the soil which will help to feed you the next time you go to the supermarket great well matthew congratulations on an incredibly thought-provoking book it's obvious reading it how much research has gone into it and uh, it's been fantastic talking about it i can hear the passion that you have for your subject when you talk about it so thank you for talking with us today i'll certainly never think about what's under my feet in the same way again Oh, absolute pleasure, pleasure, Natasha. I just think, I think every time we can care about soil, if we if we know about soil and we tell its stories, then we're going to care about its fate. Mm. So yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Well, listeners, that's it for this episode. As always, go to the website for links such as where to buy Matthew's book, Soil: The Incredible Story of What Keeps the Earth and Us Healthy, and also a link to Fat Pig Farm. Thanks for listening, and wherever you are in the world, I wish you bon voyage and bon appétit. You've been listening to Extra Virgin, a podcast for the Epicurious. If you'd like to be part of the conversation, you can follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple, Spotify or Google Podcasts and subscribe, rate and leave a review.